Hi there. Thanks for checking out the New Life Speaker Podcast. All our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Lutheran Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. If you don't want to miss out on our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. The money goes towards the seven tradition and helps fund our meeting. You can find a link to this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. I am also excited to hear what I'm going to say tonight. <laughs> I have no idea. They let it go and it will go. So my name is Rick and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And uh, I say drug addict because it's a part of my story. And uh, when I drink, like I'm not capable of making a decision on the next one. So I share that because drugs entered my life at a, at a relatively later age, but it was due to drinking that I went there. Like, So I'm gonna tell you a story. Uh, I have a sponsor of 15 years. My sobriety date is August 21st of 2010. Um, my journey is uh, quite a different one. I want to I share what it was like, but I think it's more important for me to get to what happened and what it's like now. You know, I could give you all the war stories and the car accidents and all that, but for me, quite frankly, I think that this is to be a, mo a message of hope. And my experience in uh, the fellowship of AA and the 12 steps is where my wisdom lies. Like, I don't have any, I can't give you anything more than the fellowship, the journey that I took here. And uh, so I wanna go back, because I think there's a couple different kinds of alcoholism and how, it's, uh, how it kind of blossoms in people, so to speak. Um, for me, I know that emotional conflict early on in life, like raised instincts at me, that uh, definitely, as Bill would have said in one of his uh, stories, the soil was fertile long before the drink. I was uh, a child that was abandoned. Uh, my dad had left at an age that I couldn't even begin to tell you. and. Uh, you know, my mother used to say that I would sit in this bay window waiting for him to come home. And uh, he would say he'd come for the weekend and I would sit there for hours, you know, just kind of having these feelings, not even knowing where it was. And I don't re recall this myself, but she said it was, uh, my brothers were out in the backyard playing and I was just kind of just zoned in on like this loss. So I always had this feeling of need and want and, uh, you know, I thought that love was supposed to come to me. And in fact, I, I found out through working the steps in the fellowship that I need to give love in order to receive love. And uh, so early on, I was in it. Like, <laughs> I would say by the age of 12 or 13, I found my first drink in my parents' liquor cabinet. Nobody in my family drank. They had a bottle of like cherry brandy, slow gin, and a bottle of Seagram Seven, and uh, I hit the <laughs> I hit the cherry brandy, 
and I took a swig of this stuff and I was, I don't even know what possessed me because I didn't, I started alone drinking and I finished alone drinking. Like, I don't know what possessed me, but uh, I can tell you the shag carpet, the paneling on the wall. I can tell you this overwhelming sense of this, like, buzz that went through my entire body. And they call that an allergy, you know, like, I truly believe I had the allergy. So... For me, when I share about the emotional conflicts and that, like, that drove my alcoholism because that warped my instincts, I also believe that you can become an alcoholic by practicing a lot of drinking. <laughs> like, that will definitely get you there, too. So I had a combination of both, you know, because once I had that good buzz going, at the age of 13, I ran for that for 30 years. I ran for that feeling for 30 years. And it wasn't even like uh, two, three weeks later that I was at a buddy's house and I uh, drank a pint of Cuddy Sark, which is a little different than cherry brandy and a little more than what I had taken that first time. And I was sick for three days, you know, and uh, all I figured at that point was I got to figure out how to do this right. Like, I wasn't thinking of not drinking. I was thinking of how do I make, how do I drink and be successful with it. So my story is one of uh, this abandonment thing took hold of me for a long, long time. And I got a girlfriend when I was uh, 13 years old. She was 14. And that was a big deal. And we were together for a year. And uh, she broke it off and those feelings came. My parents also up and moved me out of this neighborhood that I grew up in, and that drove those instincts again, where I had to move into this new neighborhood and kind of make the friends again. And So I was a chameleon in school, like I was friends with everybody. I didn't have a particular group, you know. Back then they were the nerds and they were the jocks and they were, uh, you know, just the band members, I forget what they called them, but uh, I was in with all of them. I had this collective group of people. I had my solid friends here and there, but they were like, the, they were the ones. And, uh, you know, and I, and I hung with them and I played sports and I did well and I, and I got through uh, high school and started being a counselor at this day camp. And this is where the drinking really got heavy. So I was, I was a uh, junior counselor and I'm, I'm like 17 maybe. It was right before I ended high school. So I'm about 17 years old and I'm hanging out with all these 21 to 22 year olds. And, uh, and they would be going down the shore for the weekends, going to bars, drinking and doing their thing. And they would like huddle, get me into the middle of the circle and they'd walk me into these bars and stuff. And when I got in there and I saw the bartender and I saw the crowds and I saw the fun, my life changed. That's, that's who I wanted to be, that's where I wanted to be. And I was in restaurant business for 40 years from that point on. I always share, like I was the guy that graduated high school, went to senior week, and then didn't come home from, for three years. Like I got home the week after senior week, I packed my bags, and went back to the shore for three years and tended bar and hung at the shore and absolutely uh, did whatever I wanted to do. The money was there, you know, the, the atmosphere was there. It was just an incredible place for me. Drinking 
for me was really, really good for a long, long time. It really was, I have to say that out loud. Like, when I took that first drink, it was the solution to me. And when I continued drinking through high school, through early, I didn't, I didn't do the college thing. I went for three weeks to Penn State and that was, uh, I ended up being the guy with the keg in the parking lot kind of deal, you know, I just, that's where I was. So I never really, uh, I never really found a place in terms of uh, being successful except in the restaurant. And I tended bar up until I hit a corporate place in uh, the early 90s. So I wanna share, I met my wife at a bar uh, at the time, she was not old enough to drink. And I kicked her out and then I couldn't wait for her to come back. Like it was this place of uh, a year and a half after she came back to the bar when she was old enough and within three weeks I had asked her to marry me. Like that's just, and I had not dated for more than six months my entire life, but this was the woman. Like I knew it in my heart and soul. And uh, so I wanna share that uh, we partied. We were together uh, for a good long time and we partied hard. and. Uh, we got married in the Virgin Islands, and we had a uh, two-year commitment down there trying to get the thing together, and then we had 45 people come down to this place in St. John, and we had this crazy party down there, and, uh, you know, and that's the way we lived our lives, you know, and, and my ex-wife, rest her soul, um, you know, she uh, continued her journey the way she did, and, uh, and that always really drives me home. So to validate myself for you, I hope you understand, like, it's as simple as, like, I can't take a drink. My body does not react like other people to a drink. Like, I have this thing that I just, there's no reservations. So I want to go into um, what happened. And uh, you could say the first thing that happened in 1990 was a DUI. And I was totally not ready for any kind of recovery. And they sent me to an AA meeting. And I wanna tell you, I walked into this AA meeting and it was still smoking back then and everything. So all I saw was like the tops of these heads and this clouds of smoke and everybody going, keep coming back, keep coming back. And I'm like, get me out of here. Like I want nothing to do with this. And I had driving class that I had to go to. It was like a half an hour away so I'd pop like, 30 milligrams of Valium and I would drink a 30 of a, or a, what is it, a 40 of extra gold and I'd go there and everybody be laying in the grass at this place, just kind of hanging out and it was just, I had no clue what I was doing there. So that was the first experience of AA. The second experience of AA was in 2004. So 14 years later, I get another DUI and they send me to Karen outpatient so we'd go to Karen outpatient, and we'd all sit in the groups, and then we'd go to small group, and then we'd go down to G&A, and we'd start drinking afterwards, you know? There was no, like, I was not committed to this thing at all, and I wasn't ready for it. And it took about four more years for me to even get a concept of, of this recovery. I truly believe, and I wanna, I wanna step back because I think this is really an important part of this too, is, um, in 2002, I lost a career job, and uh, 
I drank my way right out of it. I can say that today. Like before, I would always have an excuse of why I lost that job, but I drank myself right out of this job. It was a, it was an eight-year partnership with a major corporate restaurant, and uh, at the end of that, at the end of that uh, term, my wife threw a party for me. That night, when I handed my keys to the bosses and I lose this career job, she. She holds a party at my house and invites all my friends. And we stayed up until like four in the morning around the bonfire talking and everything. And she drops a bomb on me about an affair that she had. So here is the career job's gone. I'm in the height of my alcoholism at that point anyway. And now this abandonment thing starts rolling again, like this place of like uh, the one woman that I just loved like just absolutely dropped the bomb. And uh, so with that being said, the next six years, I'm gonna say probably, probably around six years before I got into treatment was a, a day and night event. I didn't drink, like I drank and I was maintaining and I was not, it was a round the clock event because I didn't have a real job. I was working, I had, I had my own construction company that I would go down to Villanova and clean gutters and pave driveways and paint decks and whatever the case and I would make a lot of money but I had nothing, you know what I mean? And I was trying to support my family. So at some point along that line, my wife at the time still, um, I think about her often today because I have a different I have a different feeling for her than I did for the last ten years. But uh, she put me on to one of those job hunt things, and she got me a corporate job at a restaurant again. So now here I am going back to a restaurant. I didn't want to do it. I I I was so happy with just doing whatever you want to call it that I was doing at the time with this construction thing. But I went in and I got the job immediately and we went to work and this is how my journey of recovery started. So there was a general manager for this place that was a, I never call anybody an alcoholic, that's for me to call myself, you know what I mean? And, uh, but this guy drank. Let's just say that. And he was one of those weekend guys that would disappear and you'd never see him again. And then he'd be back. And well, they would catch me. Like, I didn't drink at work, but I certainly drank right up to it. And they would catch me and walk me to the Starbucks down the street. So the area director and this guy would take me to the Starbucks. And then they would explain to me that if they catch me drinking again, this is strike one. And then I had strike two. And when the third strike came, you know, I was in a place of, uh, it was my last drunk. So I'll give you that. Uh, my last drunk was on September 18th of 2008. And I had started the morning on a golf course and probably finished off a bottle of Absolute at some point between the drive there and the drinks there. And uh, then I went home and uh, I went to this barber shop where they were serving vodka. God knows why that was, but they were serving vodka there too. And I drank there. And then I went home and I almost burned down my house. I was in the Culinary Institute for like 
in the institution of culinary, I should say, for almost like, I don't know, 20 years at that time. And uh, I knew how to cook and I put the vegetables on low and I said, I'm gonna go take a nap. And it was like one in the afternoon. And I woke up to my children walking in from school, just screaming at the top of their lungs and the entire house was full of smoke. And I, uh, so I, I uh, got the fire off the stove and I put the smoke out as best I could. And, uh, you know, my uh, Blazy came home, my wife came home and uh, we had it out. And uh, she took my car keys and I walked to the bar. You know, and I just continued on this thing. And that night, uh, I closed the bar with the owner and the bartender, and they drove me home. And uh, all I can tell you is I remember waking up in the morning, and my car was down the street, and I had no idea why I parked it there. And one of those things, again, where the blackout was so great. And uh, I woke up on the couch. I had been sleeping on a couch at this point for probably eight years or so because of this affair thing that had taken place. And uh, I remember looking over and there was some woodchuck cider, half a six pack drunk. And I, and I had this overwhelming sense that I didn't want to drink anymore. And I never had that. In all my life, I had never had that feeling of not wanting to drink. And uh, I did something about it, you know. I got up, I went to work, I got all the cooks in line, I went into the office, I handed the other manager a cash box and I told him, I got an appointment, I've gotta go. And I remember driving and I didn't know where I was going, I didn't know where the, I remember where the outpatient was for Karen and I said, well, let's try that. And I went there and they're like, we don't have beds here. So you'll have to go to the regular in-house. And I remember driving, they gave me the directions. I remember going there, I remember passing two liquor stores on the way, but I didn't want to drink still. Like it was this overwhelming sense of, I've never had this feeling. All I kept saying to myself is I gotta get honest. Like I've got to find a way to get honest. So I get to the treatment center and I look over and the steps are in this admission area. And I had no idea what was going on there. Like I didn't have any clue on Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't like follow any of that stuff. I, I didn't think there was a problem, quite frankly. But when I read the first step, it was so on point for me that it just absolutely consumed me. So what I did was I uh, got through admissions and the guy came over and he goes, all right, we have a bed for you. It's gonna be, you're gonna be in detox for a little bit because you are not anywhere near going down to the community. And he said, um, let's go get your stuff. And I'm like, I don't have anything. And he goes, well, you know, this is outpatient and you're going to be here for 30 days. I'm like, listen, I got in my car and I drove here because I had to lock myself up. I didn't want to go home and start this process again. So I called my wife and she was thrilled about me uh, being in treatment. And she brought some clothes and, uh, and my journey started. And I'd like to share with you that journey is... Uh, really what it comes down to for me. So I was in detox for quite a bit. Um, and at that time, they used to have the community members come down to visit you. Like it was kind of this uh, 
get you ready for going back up to the community. It was really kind of cool. And uh, they'd come down and say hello, and they'd talk to you. And all I kept thinking was, man, I'm eating good and taking these Librium things or whatever they call them. And I'm just like, this is the deal right now. I had called my boss at work, and he's like, you're good. He goes, you caught you. What they told me was that if I wasn't in a treatment center, I would not be working for them. But being that I placed myself into a treatment center, they could do nothing about it. So I was very excited that I had the job, right? Now I got 30 days off. I'm popping these pills. I'm like just going, this is like, what is happening right now? And uh, I remember going and getting into uh, the, the unit itself. And the first night they had a meeting and they all went into this upstairs place and uh, they all shared like, uh, like they wanted to hold hands and pray. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world did I just get into? Because I had no clue on any of this stuff. Like I was like, so the lights were dimmed. They all started doing the serenity prayer and I was just like, I think I made a mistake. Like, this is not what, who or what I am. If you go, like, uh, I, I, the best way for me to describe it is, like, I had no faith coming into this thing. I was what the step two calls the bewildered one. Like, I had no background in religion. I had no, no like, these rabbit hole prayers. I didn't do any of that stuff. I drank. Like, that was my comfort. You know, there was no character building. There was nothing on that end. I, I drank. So as I'm moving through this community, we start reading some things. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to read this big book, this blue book. And, uh, and I started going at it. And I started reading it. And the word spiritual kept coming up, whether it was an awakening or an experience. So my first goal was to get spiritual. Like that was it for me when I, and I ran for it and I had no idea what I was doing. I thought it was a single line that you take to get there. And I started asking the priest and I started asking the reverend and they all directed me to this spiritual counselor. So I walk into this place and she, uh, she looks at me and she says, are you like, you have an animal spirit. And I'm like, okay. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to go with that. And she goes, do you have any Native American descent? And I'm like, yeah, my, my grandfather's full-blood American Indian. And she's like, wait right here. And she runs out of her trailer. She had a trailer. She wasn't even in an office at that time. And she comes back with all these books. And, she, and I don't read. I got to read in high school. I don't even know if I read a full book in my entire life at this point. And she's got like three or four books that she wants me to start reading. And I'm like, I just like, this is just a new world for me. So I started investigating the spiritual part of this thing. And as I started going through some processes, like the 12 and 12 is really good. If you're new here, like grab a hold of that thing because that is a great explanation of where the steps go. So for me, I opened up, obviously, to the last pages to read about what was happening there because I wasn't going to go through this whole book. And it gave you a definition of, there are as many definitions of a spiritual awakening as there are people who have had them. 
and that opened up a like that just made it bigger than it was for me like that was interesting to me and then it said below it but they have one common theme that we're able to do see feel and believe like we could not before on our unaided will alone so i was thinking to myself like well i don't, I don't have any of that anyway so that's not going to be a problem like and i just really kind of tried to wrap my head around this whole spiritual place and uh the one thing that I was taught was the spirituality piece is a thought process. Like it's a thought process that's sufficient enough to bring about recovery. And for me, like instead of going for the drink, I started having to channel my thoughts towards recovery. So I'm sitting at with the boys in the community and we're like doing these little fist steps at night. like. You know, we're talking about our lives and sharing things. And it was so freeing, like, to be with these. There was, like, four of us that really dove into this at night. And we would go to these in-house meetings, right? So there was uh, there were these meetings that we would hold in my... Uh, they, were, they were speakers that would come in. And uh, I remember one night we're sitting there and this guy's speaking and he's a restaurant, like... Uh, He's in restaurant sales and he's a big vice president of this company and he's talking about his life. And when it was over, there was just a buzz in our community. Like this dude had it, like he really was blue collared it. He explained it well. And I said, if I ever see that guy, I'm asking him to sponsor me. And uh, lo and behold, treatment ends. It's, uh, I became the president of my community because, you know, I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I really, like, truthfully, I was in that place of desperation that I did. I did everything that they asked of me, and I really followed the path. And when I got my papers, like, to go, they gave me a meeting list, and, you know, they had my wife come in. Blazy came in to sit down, and uh, she looked at me, and she looked at the counselor, and he's like, you know, you're going to have to get the booze out of the house. Probably a good idea. And she's like, who knew him? He's the problem. I'm not moving any booze. And he took me aside and said, this, this could be a nightmare for you. And I was like, you know, I, she's going to work this thing out. You know, that's how I felt at the time. So I'm leaving, I'm leaving treatment. I am, uh, my car's there. I drove there, remember the, and uh, I remember the, the little counselor coming up at the end of the day and he's like, listen, we got to get your keys for the car. We can't find your keys. And I'm like, I have my keys. I never handed them. I never had 30 days. I never handed them in. And he goes, you've had your keys the whole time. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I wasn't going anywhere. Like I want to stay, but my insurance or my American express isn't cutting it for you guys. And I got to go. Like I really did. I wanted to be a part of this thing. And, uh, I remember leaving, I remember pulling out to the entrance of this treatment center and I had no idea where I was. Like, I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know which way to go. So I went to this Native American thing, right? And I'm like, all right, the left hand is closer to the heart, full of love. The right hand strikes down with evil. I'm gonna make a left. And I went down the hill to the left. I got halfway down the mountain and froze. Like, I was so confident when I was in there about, like, I got this. All of a sudden, I'm out of that bubble. Like, it was terrifying to me. 
and I pulled over into this little playground and I reached into my glove compartment and I found a meeting list. So I'm not 30 minutes out of treatment and I'm going to this place called River Road for a speaker meeting. And I get to the River Road and I remember my wife calling and going, where are you? I'm like, I went to a meeting. And she's like, what are you talking about? You just had 30 days of treatment, you're not better? Like, why are you going to meetings? And I'm like, this is gonna be a problem. Like, all of a sudden I was thinking to myself, you know what, this is not gonna be, this is not gonna be easy. And uh, at that point, um, I went to the speaker meeting and it was, the guy was sharing was perfect for me because he had 10 years and he was talking about a higher power and he just was so frustrated with it. He didn't get it. He couldn't understand it and that's, I'm thinking like, I've only got 30 days and I'm right in that boat. But it was so, the guy was so alluring with the way that he spoke of it. He didn't talk down about it. He just couldn't like put a stamp on it. And that's what I needed to hear. Like I needed to know that this is gonna be an evolution and it's gonna take time. So I get home and uh, Obviously, the wife would had people over, and it was what it was. I don't, I don't really recall that whole area of it. The thing I do remember is going to a meeting the next morning, and the guy that was speaking at treatment was sitting in the corner of the room. So I was, like, stunned first to see him there, and I don't think anything's coincidences anymore, you know. This was a guy that really... Uh, resonated with me and I walked over to him and I did just what they told me to do a treatment I walked up and I said so do you think you can temporarily sponsor me and he looked at me and he said listen he goes I got about a year and my sponsor just told me I need to start sponsoring people but are you temporarily recovering and I was like eee. that's what they told me to say and he's like listen I will work with you I will do the best I can for you, but I'm gonna tell you right now, if I don't know, I'll find out. And he gave me that, like, that honest piece of humility right there, like, this guy doesn't know it all, and that was perfect. So 15 years later, he's still my sponsor. He's still in my world. We talk at least once or twice a week, and uh, he, he started me through the steps. This is part of my journey that is difficult for me to share because the first 18 months of my recovery, I didn't drink, but I was certainly like taking a pill here, taking a little hit of weed here, trying to take the edge off. And all of this time I could not comprehend why I wasn't getting connected. Like, why is this not working? Why don't I feel this higher power thing? Why don't I have a spirit? Like, and uh, it, it came crashing down on me. Uh, Probably 18 months in, I was smoking pot every day. I was going back to old habits. I was like, like, where am I getting it? How am I doing it? Like all of the old deceitful feelings and, and thoughts were just all over the place. And uh, I remember being down at the Jersey Shore and uh, this monster storm hit and uh, I was high and I was on the beach. And uh, all I remember is that uh, it was it was a terrible storm and my car windows were open and i got soaking wet and the, the rain was like stinging rain i don't 
had salt water in it, like maybe, I don't know what was going on, but people were screaming, running off the beach. It was really crazy. And then I had enough AA in me to think, man, you know what, like, was that my higher power, like, talking to me there? So I called my sponsor and I told him everything and he said, yeah, I know. Like, I had stopped praying, I stopped meditating, I stopped doing everything that I was supposed to do, and I fell into that trap. So. I say August 21st of 2010 because that's when I came back into the rooms and I admitted to my group that I had relapsed. And uh, so I went back to my sponsor's house and I said, what are we gonna do? He goes, all right, we're gonna grab the big book. We're gonna read one through 164. You're gonna call me for two weeks. You're gonna read the 12 and 12 step one. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 we did, all, we did all this stuff. Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, yeah, obviously there's something not clicking with you. So we went back through the steps. And I want to share, like, the first step for me is still, like, I got it. And I know it's the problem and it's the 100% piece that I got. But I can tell you, like, there are still thoughts out there sometimes that just waver a decade later, like that I just need to really, what am I doing every day to enlarge my spiritual life? So at the end of our 12 steps this time, he looked at me and he said, what's your plan? And I'm like, I, I don't really know. And he goes, you need to reach your hand out to another alcoholic. And I was like in a place like, I don't know if I'm really ready for that. You know what I mean? Like, and he goes, do you remember what I said to you when I got, like when you asked me, <laughs> he goes, you're through, you're responsible, it's your time. So needless to say, a couple guys were needling me about this and we're going back and forth. And I went to my meeting one morning and this guy comes up and asks, like it was a gift and he's got 10 years this past year and he is just one of my dearest friends you know and I've got sponsees throughout the years that you know I look at them like we go through the step process and then it's their journey what are you going to do with it you know what I mean and it's always important for me to remember that I can't control any of that this is their place but I will always be there like my commitment for my sponsees is like I've got sponsees with 10 years, eight years, seven years, six years. I've got one guy brand new. I've got a plethora of people around me. Now, do I talk to them all every day? Absolutely not, you know? But there are times in their lives when they struggle and they come and there's times in my lives, I don't know who's sponsoring who anymore, quite frankly. But the way I look at it is my, my journey is and my responsibility now is to be a conduit to the people that came before me. And there were a lot of people that stood out on the stoop at the 815 for hours at a time and took care of me, you know what I mean? And, and held my hand when I was hurting. And I go to the 815 some mornings and I know that I don't need a meeting that morning, but I need to be there for that person that does need us there. You know, there's a responsibility level to this thing that's so important to me. So to share with you on the step process for me, and I don't want to go into it too deep, but like the honesty piece in step one was so important and I needed to remember that honesty for me was not telling you what you need to be doing and where you need to be at. It's to thy own self be true. 
because honesty without sensitivity is brutality. Like there's a place where if I am being honest with someone else and their doings, I am not being, I'm not working principles in my life. Step two for me was about fantasy and reality. It was about hope. The principle for step two is hope. And there is a fantasy of like, can I still go this path? Like it'll be different this time or am I living in the reality of this is what I need to be doing in my life today. This is what is in front of me and how I need to be doing this. There, step two doesn't have God in, it says power greater. So I needed to find something greater than what got me here. You know, I needed something greater than that bottle of Ron Bacardi is what I really wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I moved forward and I used the rooms for a long time. And, the, and it's a piecemeal project. Step two is like this. It's going to it's going to like uh, blossom for you. Like if you keep working it, it changes your faith changes, your whole demeanor changes. I'm speaking for me. And my life has completely been lifted through the surrender steps. When I look at step three, I always laughed at my sponsor because we got to, I remember walking up to him in a meeting going, when is it gonna happen? When is this gonna happen? And he's like, stop looking. He goes, the spirit can only do for you what it can do through you. And now that you've cleared your conscience and you've stopped the mind and mood altering substances, the light has come on again, like the light's there. And you need to find that light and you need to move forward with it. And I'm like, well, what do I, what is step three? Like, he goes, it's a decision. All you need to do right now is tell me, yes, I'll do it. And I was like, yes. And he's like, all right, now we're gonna get to work. And step three is not a decision just at that moment in time, step three is an everyday decision to make that I need to turn my will and my life over. You know what I mean? And I start my mornings with that, with thank you, show me, guide me, change me. Thank you for what you gave to me. Thank you for what you took from me. And thank you for what you left for me. So I start with gratitude. I go to letting go and then I give it a piece of humility in the end. And that's an every morning event, no matter what, before I get out of bed, that is the mantra that goes, because for me, I need to do it then, or it's gonna be the world's hitting when I leave the front door, like, you know what I mean? Like it's coming at me and I'm not gonna have time to really reevaluate that, so. Step four, the principle was courage, and I had to take a look at myself, find the causes and conditions, and bring them to the table, the instincts that went awry. And, uh, you know, and then step five was a place of integrity to share that with my sponsor and really reevaluate. Like, when you bring that to the table and you start talking about it, it takes another light. Like, it's real at that time. So he told me to sit down for an hour and do step six. And it, step six, his principle that he gave me on that was willingness. Then now I'm willing to have these defects of character removed. So when I say that, like, if you look at the decision that we make in step three, that's a decision. You don't have to take action on that. You know, that it's just a decision. You don't have to do anything at that point. You're just acknowledging that you need to do something. 
Well, entirely ready is the same thing. If I'm entirely ready to have these character defects removed, that doesn't mean that it has to happen right now. And quite frankly, they're not going anywhere because they're instincts that God gave me and I just need to bring them back to levels of acceptance for myself and the people around me. If I look at a character defect, it is a instinct that has gone awry that I am acting out on. If I stop acting out on it, then it's removed. It's on the shelf. You know, I'm not, I'm not having any issues with it. But I need to be cautious with that because I can, that is not an easy event. Like for me, it, it, it's just not an easy place for me. And seven is humility. You know, that's, a, that's the underlying current for all the steps. Humility is, you hear about it right in step one and straight through the board. So for me, the humility piece was like, the shortcomings are my actions taken on those character defects and I just need to watch what I'm doing. You know, my, my buddy down the shore always says, yeah, I never once got in trouble for what I was thinking. You know what I mean? So I have to remember like my thoughts I can't give them power. I need to let those thoughts go, share them with somebody, and then acknowledge them, accept them, and let them move on, you know? And if they're right after the sharing process, then you take action. Eight was the list I made in four. Then I can tell you, that changed a lot. Like when I did that list in step four, I was only as good as at step four as the person I was at the time. So I'm having all this trouble with all these people. By the time I get to step eight and I start healing a little bit, I start forgiving myself a little bit, I look at the list and it changed. Like, I don't even need to do anything with that person. Like, why was I even, what happened there? And that's the, that's the beauty of healing. And that's what we're trying to do through this. Step nine is that amends process and be careful please just be careful if you're doing step nine, like you need to really address that with somebody. For me, it was a place of, like there's all kinds of amends that you can do. And for me, it was a place of just, I needed to have a peaceful, tranquil mind going into it. I needed to also have forgiveness for myself because I could not transmit that to somebody. I couldn't give that to somebody if I didn't have it for myself. So. I like to stop there around step nine because 10, 11, 12, and 12 are like repeat of the step process. You have reflection in 10, you have prayer and meditation that comes in 11, and then you have service in 12. So they're, they're just like kind of the daily maintenance and the guidance that I need to use of the steps that I've worked prior and kind of focus there. So I, I go with... Um, What's the goal here? You know what I mean? Like, that's what my buddy said the other morning and it kind of really lit me up. He's like, what is our goal here? Our goal here is step 12. We want to have a spiritual awakening. We want to share that with somebody and we want to practice those principles that we've learned in all our affairs. So I'm grateful today that I really, that really resonates for me. And if I can tell you that working with other people and, and having my hand out, that just reinvests me back into the steps. And it also gives me a responsibility, not for their recovery, but a responsibility level that I can feel in myself 
that I need to have. So I'm grateful to be here tonight. I was, uh, I always say like gratitude, like this feeling of gratitude is um, overwhelming sometimes when things are really good. But I didn't have a very good week and I'm not feeling very grateful. And I walked in here and I had no spiritual, like I had nothing going. And I just sat in my corner downstairs. Donnie knows where that is. I have a corner down in the in my homeroom, and uh, I sat quiet. And I said, "Just give me something." Like I don't, I'm not asking. So, if I could for you, um, I'd like to close out my story with a little uh, Native American uh, prayer. If you just bear with me. Um, Great Spirit, Great Spirit, my Creator, all over the earth the faces of living things are alike. Look down upon these faces of children without number and with children in their arms that they may face the wind and walk the good road to the day of quiet. May you always speak the truth quietly Listen with an open mind when others speak and always remember the peace that is found in silence. Thank you for letting me share. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speaker Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through the seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link in the description below, or they can also be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when we upload a new episode. Thanks for listening.